0: Book of Joel is uh, an interesting text that I'm super excited to be able to talk about this morning. Uh, it's one of those books, like many of our minor prophets, that we kind of just skim by and we don't know much information about. But hopefully by the end of today, uh, by the end of this morning, you'll be very in tune with the Book of Joel. And when we get to the Book of Joel, or if you hear anything about Joel, or if you, you come uh, through adversity in your life, then you can reference the Book of Joel based on what we learned today and see what God's Word says about adversity that we'll face. So earlier this month, July 4th, July 5th, we had a few earthquakes, right? Just a little shake-ups is what people like to call them out here in California for some odd reason. Uh, but, you know, you're, you're sitting there having a conversation just like you and I are now, and then all of a sudden it's just, whoa, 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 grab hold of everything, right? What just happened? The ground just moved. Well, I, I don't like that. I don't like when the ground moves without somebody telling me that it's going to move. And what I really don't like is when California people text me and say, hey, Texas, how you doing over there? You feel that little Cali shake up? It's not funny to me, right? People laugh about it, but it's not funny. Uh, and it, it made me think about what type of natural disasters did I experience when I was growing up? Being from Texas, We had our tornadoes and call me crazy, but I'll take my tornadoes any day of the week over an earthquake. And the reason being is I get advanced warning, right? And so me personally, I'm a planner, I'm an organizer. I like to know when things are gonna happen, how they're gonna happen. That way I can plan my life around it. So tornadoes, they do that for us, right? We know a week in advance that it's gonna happen. You got a bad storm coming, then three days in advance, then two days in advance, then the day of, they have a storm tracker. They tell you exactly where this tornado is. So tornado might be two, two cities over. So you're looking at it on TV and you still feel a little comfortable, right? It's two cities over, no big deal. And then it gets a little bit closer. And then before you know it, they have these huge sirens that, 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 that pronounce sound throughout the entire city. So you're sitting there and you're watching it on TV and then all of a sudden you hear it. and what that sound means, as annoying as it is, that sound means destruction is to follow. Something behind it is a lot worse than that sound, and you better take cover. Okay? So, as, like I said, as annoying the sound is, nobody's thinking at that, at that moment, hey, would somebody just shut up those sirens, please? Turn them off. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to watch TV here. Nobody's thinking about that at the time. All you're thinking about is what is beyond that siren? What's causing that siren? That's the tornado to follow. Well, the book of Joel is very similar to that. God gives us these warning signs in our life to let us know that, hey, we need to turn and repent from whatever sin that we're harboring. There's sin in our lives that he's trying to get us to turn back from. There's these securities in our lives that he's trying to get us to to pull back from and put our full attention and put our full trust in him and not these resources that we have in life that we think are securities. And the book of Joel is going to tell us that, and we're going to unpack that a little bit today. So before we get there, what I do want to do is talk about what we know about the book of Joel, just some, just some facts about the book of Joel. So first and foremost, we know it's three short chapters, right? And we're, we're in this lesson of minor prophets, and minor prophets is not due to significance, but we call them minor prophets because of what? Volume, size, right? They're smaller than our major prophets in size and volume, but most of these minor prophets pack a lot of... A lot of content, a lot of rich content, as we'll see today in Joel. The second thing we have is there's no hard dating information about the book of Joel. And, and quite frankly, there's a lot of general themes in the book of Joel. It doesn't give us any specific kings that were around during that time. It doesn't give us any specific sin that Judah was committing during this time. It doesn't give us any dates. But what we can take a look at and, and, and put a rough date estimate on what's happening is we, we can look at the book of Amos, which is to follow, which is our third minor prophet that's, that follows Joel. And when we look at Amos, uh, we can look at, actually, when we look at Joel 3.16, you don't have to turn there. I'm just using this for reference. But if you look at Joel 3.16, it starts off by saying, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Well, the next book, Amos, it starts off that with that very same text. It lifts it right out of Joel and Amos starts off with that. And as we know, Amos is a, a prophet from the south who travels to the northern kingdom to deliver his message right after Joel. So based on that, the book of Amos, is the date is 760 B.C. So if we wanted to put a rough date on Joel, then we could say 830 B.C. for a rough date. But if, if you've read some commentaries here, they're going to give you different dates, but just based on the research and based on that context, and we can put a rough date of 830 BC for this book. So the name Joel, Joel means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. We see the, the name Joel is a pretty common name in the Old Testament. 14 times the name of Joel is used. None of them are connected, and what we know about Our prophet Joel is all in this book. Outside of that, we don't know much about Joel outside of this book, but the name is very common, which you'll see. The theme of this book, the day of the Lord, you'll continue to hear this, the day of the Lord, which is God's judgment, right? God's judgment being poured out, the wrath on his enemies, on evil. So I'm going to come back to that, um, explain the day of the Lord. That way we all have alignment on exactly what we mean by the day of the Lord. So I'll come right back to that. But I do want to talk about the setting. So the setting of this book is the aftermath of the locust plague. Right now a locust plague has happened and it's taken over and Joel is standing there after the locust plague begging the people to repent. And then he illustrates what's to come next, the future day of the Lord, and then the ultimate day of the Lord in the end. So, as I was thinking about this locust plague, I thought about what what, what type of plagues have we experienced, right? I want to illustrate this for you, that we can have a vivid picture of what is a plague? Because we say plague, but sometimes like, ah, it's just a plague, no big deal. But a plague is a big deal. And so I thought about a plague, a swarm, what do we have recently? And I I did some research, and we had one this year, a swarm, actually. Anybody remember what that swarm was? butterflies, right? These monarch butterflies. Remember in March, they were all coming from Mexico, billions of them. They were migrating up to the Pacific Northwest and they just flooded the skies. And if you were like me, you were probably driving down the road and you're like, what are all these leaves doing around here? What, why are they floating? Why are they not falling? Um, but they were butterflies, right? They were They were transitioning to the Pacific Northwest and they flooded all of Southern California, billions of them. But one thing during this time is my daughter and my son, they were out like, oh, butterflies, right? They wanted to take pictures. All these butterflies, cute, pretty, whatever you want to call it. But that's the swarm that we experience. This plague, I can guarantee you, nobody was taking selfies with locusts. I promise you that. That's these guys right here, all right? We don't like locusts. They're, they fly everywhere. They eat everything. They're not a pretty picture as a butterfly would be. But this is what Judah was swarmed with, with locusts. And this was what was going on during that time. So I do want to go back to the day of the Lord to make sure that we, we understand the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour period. It's a general period of time where God unveils his wrath, his judgment, uh, and unveils his character. It's mighty, powerful, holy, and it's terrifying to his enemies. Right? And most of the times when we hear a day of the Lord, we automatically go to the book of Revelation. Eschatological event that we're thinking the end time, but the day of the Lord does not necessarily mean the end time. Sometimes it's a seismic event, sometimes it's earthquake. sometimes it's violent weather, sometimes it's personal in our lives. Pastor Mike talks about this quite often—the the day of the Lord um, that could be personal to a, a child, right? It's when dad comes home and he's tired, he's sitting on his recliner just just wanting to relax. The kids are running around crazy and. The, the, Mom can't get control of them, and then before you know it, dad, dad's tired of it. He's let it go one, two, three times, and then finally he gets up. And then for the kids, it's like, <gasps> and that's the day of the Lord for them, right? It's, <laughs> everything's about to just go downhill from there. But that can happen personally in our lives. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 tells us that. It says, for they, they being earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he, God, disciplines us For our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so we can have this personal day of the Lord in our life that typically is adversity, which we'll talk a lot more about today. So, lastly, this is broken up into three different sections. So, chapter one is talking about the historical. The locust plague that has happened. And Joel calls us to repent because this locust plague that's happened in the past, there's far worse that's going to happen in regards to God's judgment. So if we go to chapter 2, the first half of chapter 2 is Joel begins chapter 2 by illustrating this future day of the Lord. And it's talking about this foreign army that's going to come into Judah, that's going to take over, that's going to run everybody out. And again, he calls us to repent. Because, yeah, that's bad, but there's worse to come. And then lastly, the end of chapter 18 and then even all of chapter 3 talks about the ultimate day of the Lord. Right? The book of Revelations, where we talk about when God's going to ultimately come back and he's going to restore his people. He's going to judge and he's going to pour out his wrath on all of his enemies. So that's what's broken up there. So look, we're all going to face adversity in our lives, right? Whether it's big, whether it's small, we're going to face it. But hopefully by the end of this sermon today, you're going to understand exactly how God is calling us to respond when we see this adversity that happens in our lives and what he's calling us to repent from. So let's jump into our text and start off with verse 1. You're thinking, I'm ready. Finally, let's get to the text, Kellen. I agree. Let's get to the text. All right, so let's open up and uh, we'll start off in verse 1, chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord, Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children. And their children to another generation. So they—they're in complete shock right now. They're in awe, right? This is one of those situations where you look to whomever's next to you and you say, "Hey, you're going to remember this for the rest of your life." That's what they're thinking right now. Verse four: What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail. All you drinkers of wine, because of sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. So he's saying even to the the, the drunkards out there, it's like, look, you're you're not going to have anything that's going to numb your pain. Anybody thinks that they're going to run to sweet wine and numb their pain, it's not going to be an option. Verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It is stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament, cry out like a virgin wearing sackcloth. For the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes, it's withering away. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So we get it. They're they're feeling right now complete desolation right? If we don't have a good understanding of that right now, we, we think about the, the fields and the crops that they had. That's what, that's how they ate. That's what they sold. That's how they made money. All of that is gone. So if you think about it, you don't have anything to eat, right? You don't have any way to make money. Everything's gone. So we can imagine how they feel. But for us, adversity impacts us personally and makes us feel that way too, right? We don't have anything. Right? And, and some of you might be thinking at this moment, like, oh, God, God wouldn't make adversity in my life, jot down this reference, Isaiah 45, 7. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calam- calamity. It's a synonymous word for adversity, which we're talking about today. I am the Lord who does all these things. So adversity might impact us. It has a way of grabbing our attention and bringing us down to our knees. You've heard people say it before, I hit rock bottom. I couldn't turn anywhere else but up. You think about 9-11 when that happened in our country, right? On that Sunday, churches were flooded because everybody put away their securities. Everybody put away these false gods that they had, and they turned to the one true sovereign God that they could put their hope in because they knew that everything else didn't matter, didn't exist during that time. So God uses adversity in our lives to turn the focus back to him. Turn the folks away from everything else and, and back to him. And, and we got to recognize that. And that brings us to point number one tonight is recognize God's warnings in your adversity. Recognize God's warnings in your adversity. While the rest of the world may panic and, and, and think, oh, that's just a coincidence. That, that, that's not going to happen uh, to me. That's no big deal. God's calling us to take a look at adversity that happens in our life and, and turn from it and run to him. I used to live in this neighborhood in, in Laguna Niguel previously, and uh, this neighborhood, like, the HOAs drove me crazy there because they were so strict. It's like, get a life. Do something else. Why are you making all these rules? Like, I'm paying money here. It's not a big deal. But what they were so strict about is parking on the street. They didn't want anything impeding street traffic. Even if, like, your bumper was, was one foot off of your driveway and into the street, they put a warning sticker on it. And by the sounds of it, yes, I got plenty of warning stickers because of my bumpers. I'll admit that, right? But one day I was coming home specifically, and it was late. I was coming from a work event, getting home around 10 or 11, and they did have designated street parking that was out there. but. It wasn't available, and if it wasn't available, you'd have to park in the next neighborhood. Well, I'm tired, right? I'm not about to park in the next neighborhood. I'm parking in my driveway. I don't care what you say, right? I'm big bad during this time. So I park in my driveway, and I inch up as far as I could to my wife's car, and yeah, a little bit was hanging off in the driveway. But as you pull into my neighborhood, there were plenty of signs that said, no street parking residents, and non-residents. So it's talking to everybody. But of course, I still did it. That next morning, I went outside and it hit my car alarm. Boop, boop. I didn't hear anything. So my car's not there. Oh, uh, you know what? I, I must have parked it in the other neighborhood. I'm going crazy. So I, I literally jogged down to the, the next neighborhood. I'm looking down the street. Yeah, car's not there either. I uh, walked back home and, uh, Chelsea, did you, did you move my car? No, nope. I've been in the house just like you have car got towed. Great. Awesome. So called the tow lot and I say, hey, describe my car. And they say, yep, we got it. Mr. Allen, come down here and pick it up as if it was free. Um, Yeah, I'm coming down there to pick it up. And I come down there, of course, 300 plus dollars later, I'm able to get my car back. And I asked them a question and they say, was there a sign? And I said, yeah, there was a sign, but was there a sign? And they were right. There was a sign there. What Joel is telling us right here, God's giving us a message that, look, this isn't just for non-believers. This is for God's covenant people. He's telling them to turn from whatever they're putting their full trust in, put their trust back in God. So we have to hear that and understand that this message is definitely for us here as believers and not just for the non-believers. It's so easy to point the finger and say, I can sit back and this message is for them, not for me. Today, we're talking about us as believers and what God is calling us to do. There's nothing more important than making sure that we're right with God, right? Psalm Psalm 139 verse 23, excuse me, it, it tells us David says, God, search me, try me, know my heart, know my thoughts, right? We got to make sure we're doing the same thing. It's so easy to get down the wrong path. I drive up to Irvine and up to L.A. quite often. I've probably done it thousands of times since I've lived here, and I still get confused. I'm sure many of you do, too, is when the 5 and the 405 split, you're riding down the 5, and in order to get to the 405, you have to be in the left, the right-hand side to go left. In order to get to the 5, you have to be on the left-hand side to go right. Logistically, that makes no sense. I don't know who made that rule, but it, sometimes I go down the wrong path if I'm not paying attention because I'm in cruise control, right? I'm not, not, not thinking straight. So uh, really what happens is you're on the right-hand side of the 405 and you go over to end up on the left and the five goes under and it ends up like this, right? But that can happen with our life. If we're just riding on cruise control, not paying attention to these warning signs that God has given us, we can easily go down the wrong path before we know it. So when we think about are you, are you hearing these, these warning signs that God has in your life, some of them might be a new job, right, a new boss, a new work situation that you may have where before everything was good. You had great relationships with everybody that was at work, but now all of a sudden you got this, this new boss, this new coworker or client that they just make you anxious every time you talk to them. They just make you cringe, right, because you know they don't have your best interests like previous people that worked with you had. And so maybe God is trying to teach you a lesson right here to, to humble you, to make sure that you're thankful going forward for the relationships that you have at work that we often take for granted. And now, because you have this tough one, it's bringing you to your knees. It's bringing you to him every day to give you guidance and strength to have these conversations with individuals at work. So maybe it's a work situation. Maybe it's finances, right? We talk about that a lot, but for you personally, when it comes to yourself, when it comes to your family, you're willing to spend money to no end to make sure that you get everything you want and need. But when it comes time to putting money into offering, then you give just enough that makes you feel comfortable. It doesn't impact your needs, your, your wants. So God puts a, a tightening grip on those finances. Money's not flowing in like it used to because he's trying to get your attention, trying to help you understand that this is my money. You're just the manager of it, and you need to give me the first fruits of it. Or maybe it's death, right? We all, we've all experienced death in our life from somebody around us that's been close to us. But maybe because of that death, you finally realize that, man, I thought that person was invincible. I thought they'd always be by my side. I thought they'd always be one phone call away. Now they're not. We had the opportunity to go to the Angels game uh, last week, and they were honoring Tyler Skaggs. If you don't know who that is, it's the the Angels pitcher. He's 28 years old. Draft pick in 2009. He was playing the Rangers uh, earlier or last month, and they were getting ready to go play the game, and they found him dead in his room. They don't know the reason why, but somebody that was in tip-top shape, a professional athlete, found dead out of nowhere. Right, and so you can imagine what they did for his teammates. They suited up with him thousands of times, thousands of games. They just got used to, hey, let's get up and go. Let's go out here and play. And then the next game, he wasn't there. And that's happened in our life as well. So. Maybe God's trying to get your attention through the death of somebody else to say, I need you to wake up. Because what if that was you? What if you weren't witnessing death, but that was you? Are you ready? Are you ready to go meet God? All right. So what, what is God trying to call my attention to? That's what we have to find out. Those securities in life, we can't put our full trust in that. We got to put our full trust in God. And look, I'm not saying we're begging for tribulations, but we got to know that it's going to happen in our life. John 16, says, Jesus says, in me, you'll have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So how can we seek what God may be calling us to repent from? The first thing is prayer. Prayer for what? Prayer for, for to, to be clear of what sin God is trying to call in our lives, right? If you pray a genuine prayer of God, reveal the sin that you're trying to bring forward and make me realize that I need to repent from, if you truly pray that, God will reveal that sin that's in your life, right? Shame, that's all the reason more to bring it. I can't bring that one. Yes, bring that one too that you're thinking about. Bring it forward to God. Hebrews 12:1 talks about the spiritual race that we're running and Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So in order for us to run the race for, to our potential, we got to let go of this extra weight, this extra sin that we're harboring. We got to let it go. We got to profess it up to God and repent from that, turn away from that. My, my, my son, he's four now, and he's getting to that size where he can reach up on a countertop and grab things. I'm six, seven, so if you can imagine, my son is a little bit tall, and so he can reach up there and he can grab candy without us knowing. So sometimes we give him the ability to go get some candy, but sometimes he gets a little greedy and say, hey, you told me I can get some earlier. Maybe that extends for the entire day, right? And so he'll go get a piece of candy, and I'll walk in. I'm like, Bryce, what are you doing? And he'll put it behind his back, right? I can see the candy, clear as day. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? Nothing. You sure? Yeah. Yeah. Is that candy in your hand? In my hand? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm talking to you. Um, Yeah. And so he's trying to play this game of like, I can't see it. Like I didn't see it. I don't see him holding the the candy. He's he's not that good at it just yet, but it, it sounds silly, but that's what we do to God. God sees this sin that we're harboring, the sin that we're holding on to that we can't get rid of, but we don't bring it forward to him. And it's clear as day. He saw us when we did it, but still we're so shameful to bring it up to God and say, God, I want to repent from this sin. Give me strength. Give me forgiveness from this sin. We don't bring it up to him because we think we're slick. We think we can hide it from him when he sees it as clear as day. Repentant prayer will lead to less sin. Unrepentant sin will lead to less prayer. And that's not good, but we gotta remember that. The second thing is counsel from another brother in Christ. This is one that we have an opportunity as men, right? We get prideful, we think, I, I gotta figure this out. There's that, there's that one sin, you know, when it's a prayer request, I'll lobby up the, the easy sins. Help me be in the Word more, right? Help me love my wife more. But what about that sin right there that you don't want that to get out? We gotta be able to lobby that up as well. And we gotta get better about that as men. We're trying to solve it ourselves is because we, we want to handle it. We want to solve the problem. Well, it hasn't worked yet, and you've been harboring the same sin for years, right? Or, or you hear this one is, you know what? They won't understand my problem. Well, that's a pride issue. All you're saying is your, your sin issue is too big for God to handle because God's put these brothers in Christ around you and your group today that are there to help you, to counsel you, to be with you, but you're telling God that, hey, it's too big for all of them. I know you put them in my life, but it's too big. That's a pride issue. we got to get rid of that. Or the last thing we, we, we think about is, you know what? If I tell them that sin, then they might think I, I don't have it all together. Guess what? None of us have it all together. We don't. And if you meet somebody that has it all together, run from them because they don't. All right? God's provided these brothers in Christ that you have at your table today and 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 they're there for encouragement, they're there for counsel, and we gotta make sure we use one another in that way. All of that to say, I'm not saying every single difficulty that we face in life is it, it, it's, it's discipline, right? But it's worth whether you're having a fender bender, whether you're having relational issues, that we, we 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 turn to God and say, is this something, a sin that you're trying to call out in my life? So the, these locust plagues that we're talking about in chapter 1, that's just a sign for what's to come, that Joel is saying is much worse. And in the rest of the chapter, verses 13 through 20, he's trying to call everybody to repent at that point in time before this future day of the Lord comes. And this future day of the Lord that I'll illustrate here uh, is coming, is it this, this army, this foreign army that's going to come. And he wants us to repent before that because it's going to get worse during that time if, if, if they don't repent. So as we, as we dive into chapter 2, we're going to talk about this foreign army a little bit. And then also we're going to hear one of the greatest hopes that the Bible has in Joel chapter 2 here. So let's go ahead and uh, turn there. Chapter 2 starts off. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion. So again, this is an attention grabber. Joel's trying to get everybody's attention. Listen up. Is what he's saying. And then throughout that, verse 1 through 11, he's talking about this foreign army. As I mentioned, they're coming into Judah. They're going to run everybody out of Judah. It's going to be desolation again, but a human army is going to run them out of town. And it's going to be much worse than that locust plague that they experienced. And as we pick it up in verse 12, I'll read that. It says, Yet even now... Three powerful words, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. What? What does that mean? Back then, during that day, when people were in anguish, they would they would rend their garments, they would tear them in anguish, right? He's saying, I don't want your garments, I want your heart. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room. In the bride, her chamber. So he's at this point in time, he said, Look, you're about to get married. That that's not important right now. Leave your wedding ceremony, turn back to God in that moment. Verse 17: between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, one to blame, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So we take my kids to the, the beach this summer. We've been taking them. My four-year-old, as I mentioned before, he's getting more confidence. He's taking swimming lessons. He thinks he's Michael Phelps now. Um, but he, he can't quite swim that well. But he'll run out to the waves, and he'll take on a few waves before he runs back. Well, my daughter, she's, she'll be two in September. She's trying to be more independent herself. She can't swim at all. But... She knows that she can stand there until the water comes, and when the water comes, she tries to stand there, and then she'll quickly run back, and she'll cling hold to my leg. And she'll cling hold to my leg because to her, that's protection from the waves. She feels comfort in coming to me and clinging tight to my leg. We have to be that way with God. We should be clinging tightly to God at all times. And then sometimes there might be a point in life where you you, you stray away just a little bit, but you got to know that we should return right back for our comfort and our peace in the Lord and cling tightly. And we got to understand that. And that's point number two for us tonight is understand God's merciful forgiveness. Understand God's merciful forgiveness. God's not like us, thankfully, right? He doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't write people off. If he did, we'd all be doomed. We'd be done. God has a unique forgiveness that we can depend on. And one of my favorite phrases in this entire book is what verse 12 starts off with is, yet even now. God's saying to the unbelievers, look, I know what you've done in your life, but yet even now, come to me. He's telling the the, the the believers on the other side is look, you, you, you've gone down this this path down here. You got this sin that I know you're holding on to that you're ashamed to 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 give to me and repent from it. Yet even now, come to me. Why why don't we come back to God? Or what's that sin we're trying to hold on to? You're thinking right now, it's like, well, I mean, I didn't commit adultery, right? Yeah, maybe you didn't commit adultery, but what about those wandering eyes? What about those lustful thoughts that you had over women that are not your wife, right? Well, I didn't yell at my wife. I know a friend of mine down the street, man, he'll he'll yell at his wife at the grocery store, make her look bad. Yeah, maybe you didn't yell at your wife, but what about that that angry thought you had when you came home, it was a long day at work, you were tired, the house was a mess, your wife asked you to clean up. What about those thoughts that you had in your mind? (laughs) Why do I have to clean up? What did you do all day? Right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus ratchets up the Ten Commandments. He tells us it's not about thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie. He's talking about our thought process now. Those are sins. So that those lustful thoughts that we're having, those angry thoughts that we're having, he's saying, look, that's, that's, that's murder in the heart, right? That's adultery in the heart. We got to realize that sin can sear our conscience, that we're not putting forth to God that unrepentant sin, it could sear our conscience, make us numb to it, make us to the point where we don't even realize it's a sin anymore. We're just, you know, it becomes our normal life. Everybody's doing it. It can't be that bad, right? Yeah, but when we're talking about a perfect and holy God, it is that bad. And we have to understand that. It gets to the point where a pastor or somebody can ask you to reflect on the sin that you're having in your life, and you think, Ugh, I mean, it's been a really good week, you know? I, I can think of two the whole week we got to be real with ourselves. I can guarantee you this morning alone you've sinned multiple times, right? And if you're not thinking that you, you have, then that means you need to examine yourself. Examine what sin truly is because you're missing the point there. Why don't people turn back to God? We hear it. It's, it's, it's too late. It, it, it's been too long. I've been doing this. God's saying yet even now, right? I've done all of that before i, I, I checked the box. Everything the pastor or somebody in my group has told me to do, I've checked that box. I've done it. God said, give me your heart. Stop giving me your garment. Stop giving me the external things. Huh? God's through with me. There, there's just nothing. I, I'm too far down this path. He's not going to take me back. God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Praise God for that. It's threaded through all throughout the Bible. God's saying, you come back to me. I'll take you back. You might be on the edge of your seat right now. I tell you, pray for forgiveness right now. Strength to turn away from whatever you're doing, whatever that that sin that you're harboring, that only you know about, turn it over to God. Rend your hearts, not your garments, right? We're not talking about these, these podcasts, these motivational speakers, these books, these therapists that we're paying money for, and they just tell you do, 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 do until you exhaust that and it's time to re up a different payment for you to do, do, do again and get nowhere, right? From the inside out, not outside in. That doesn't work. The second thing we need to do is have strong abs. Whoa, the fitness guy, I didn't come here to work out today. I know you didn't. I'm not talking about crunches and sit ups. Talking about strong abs, A is accountability you got to have accountability in our lives. you got to have somebody that's going to challenge you and that's going to tell you, hey, that's not right. Not somebody that's going to look past everything just like you do. Not your best friend. B, boundaries. That way you drive home to work, that starts to put those thoughts in your mind, take a different route, right? Know what's causing you to sin. Know those boundaries. Stay away from those places. The S, a spiritually devoted life. We talk about it all the time, the three staples, right? Being in God's word, one. Right? Being in prayer, two. Then being in fellowship, number three there. And now that we have a a good understanding of God's merciful forgiveness, let's let's uncover this this restoration power that he has now uh, to round out this chapter. So if you take a look from verse 17 to 18, we have to assume that, some time has passed. A substantial amount of time has passed and we have to assume that the nation of Judah has repented from their sins because verse 18, the subtitle says, the Lord has pity. So we see this major transition where Joel is begging them for repentance to now the Lord steps in and he's having pity and he's restoring his people. Let's pick it up in verse 18. It says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So as we look at the, the rest of the book of Joel, it, it broke, it's breaking down into restoration Chapter 2, verse 21 through 27 is the physical restoration, right? And then we get into verse 28 through 32 is the spiritual restoration. And then all of chapter 3 talks about the national restoration. Uh, Saturday morning, a few weeks ago, I took my kids up to San Clemente Atlas. We tried to get there right at 10 o'clock so I could beat traffic and Uh, mounds of people that just like to walk through the mall. So I took my kids with me, and as soon as I pulled up, there were cars everywhere. I'm like, "Is everybody had the same plan that I had? Why are there so many cars? But then I took a look at the cars, and I'm like, these are kind of exotic cars to be here shopping at 10 a.m. in the morning. Well, what I found out, and some of you may take part in it, is there's an auto show every Saturday morning at San Clemente Outlets in the parking lot. Well, I pulled up, and I don't know much about you know, older cars that have been restored, but I have an appreciation because I know the work that goes into restoring some of those cars. And they were pretty sweet. We're, we're walking through before we went into the mall and I hear conversations of people saying, hey, I spent two years on this car. I spent 10 years on this car. I spent 20 years restoring this car. And one common theme, no matter how much time that you spent restoring the car, is you have to plan time for setbacks, right? Financial setbacks, Things that break down because it's an older model. You, you, you think that you're on pace and then all of a sudden it's going to take a little bit longer. You got to plan for those setbacks. Well, the great thing about God is there's no setbacks with God, right? Everything is moving forward. Everything is sanctifying. Everything that we do, whether it's troubling, whether it's painful, he's refining us. He's sanctifying us for his kingdom. Praise God for that. And we need to look forward to that and rejoice because of that. That brings us to point number three tonight, this morning is look forward to the coming restoration. Look forward to the coming restoration. You see, God, God is the one and only source. Everything that we have in life, our jobs, our family, our money, whatever it might be, those are all resources that are provided by the one source. So the, the beauty in all of this is if we lose a resource, that source that provided it to us in the first place can provide it again in abundance, even better than it was the first time. So as we get into verse 23, I want to read that, verse 23 through 25. Verse 23 says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you an abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. So that that early rain that he's talking about is is during the months of like October and November, right? God brings down this rain, and all that does is moisten the ground and prepares it for the springtime, the rain that's later to come that's going to help with growth. That latter rain he's talking about is our normal rainy season that we'll get in the springtime, March through May. But that's the early rain he's blessing them with. Verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. So I want to unpack verse 25 a little bit because there's a lot within that one verse. If we start from the bottom up, it says, my great army, which I sent among you. Disaster and adversity oftentimes carry a message directly from God. Okay? God owns the locust. Adversity has done its work if it brings us to our knees, if it brings you to church, if it gets you to open the word. Adversity has done its work. Tozer had a quote and it said, it's doubtful that God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. If we work our way up, it describes the, the locust. It says the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. It takes a variety of Discipline for God to get our attention sometimes. We think about it with our kids. If they've gotten used to one type of discipline, then we intensify it to the next level, right? And we want to make sure that we're, we're getting their attention on whatever it is that they're doing wrong. God works the same way. We take the, the top of it as, I will restore to you the years. God restores the afflicted and he does it in abundance. Praise God for that. Some of the nicest Christians that you meet today they were the hardest of hearts before they were saved. You've heard the testimony. Some of it it might be you, right? You think about where you were before. Okay? Verse 26. Let's read that. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am your Lord God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So God's fulfilling the fact that his restoration is gonna completely satisfy us. And so as we transition from the physical restoration, we embark upon the spiritual restoration. And if you've been reading the DBR with us, then this sounds familiar to you. So when Peter was preaching the sermon at Pentecost, Acts 2:16, verse 21 is the exact phrase that Joel uses he just lifts it out of Joel and he repeats that so Joel 28 32 I won't read it uh, but it's the exact phrase and Peter used during his sermon he quotes it from Joel and so that's very significant that's how significant this book is it gives us the ability as Gentiles all to be sitting here today right? because God's pouring out his spirit on all of us not just the covenant people of Israel as we get into chapter 3, to sum that up, basically what's happening in chapter 3 is now we're talking about the eschatological event, right? The end times, revelation. This is when God's going to pour out his wrath on all of his enemies, and he's going to restore everybody, and he's going to sit atop his kingdom on earth, and it sums it up in, in verse 18 of chapter 3. It says, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. So he's going to restore us. Book of Revelations is forecasting that, prophesying that. So In conclusion here, look, I'm not saying that we need to to sit back and wait on adversity to strike next, right? You you feel like you you, you know when adversity comes, how how can I pray to God? How can I see if he's trying to reveal any sin? You don't have to sit back and wait for adversity. You can repent today. Because we know this is what God is calling us to do, we can repent before the pain comes. And it will come, but you can repent before then. Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much was given, much will be required. We get this great teaching here at this church. We hear it time and time over again, and we can't just tune it out. We have to listen and we need to respond to it as men specifically. We need to be on the offense here. Our responsibility as disciples is to go out and share the gospel, to go out and give these warning signs, give, let people know that through adversity, God has a sign for them, and maybe he's trying to call them back to him, put, his, put their full trust in him, and we got to know that we got to be out there sharing it. Every day that we have here on earth, we have a job to do. Because you woke up this morning, you have a job to do, and guess what? That job is not to have conversations about whether sports, politics, or work. That stuff is going to come up, but that, that's not the extent of our conversation. We got work to do, guys. I was recently in a car with uh, one of, one of our, our, our students from the bridge ministry, and he was sharing a situation that had happened in his life. Um, he, he, it was a few years back, and he was in a, a, a near-death car accident. 80 miles per hour. Boom. Crash. Happened. His parents fled to the scene. They thought he was dead. He thought... Death was just imminent. But while he's telling that story, he had like a smile on his face. And I'm thinking, hey, why why are you smiling? He said, Kellen, I'm so thankful and grateful for that car accident. Because it took near-death experience for God to finally wake me up and realize I need to put aside everything else I was putting my trust in and put my full trust in him. Near-death experience it took to wake him up. But praise God that he'll do that. Praise God that he gets to live on and now he gets to put his his mind fully focused on God because of that experience that finally got his attention. Maybe you're having that in your life. Maybe it's not near death, but maybe God is trying to get your attention in some way and that he's he's expecting you to turn from that right now. He sends these adversities in our lives and they they may be painful, right? They may cause us to suffer, but they're refining us, getting us ready for the kingdom. And he's getting us to repent from them. He wants to get our attention on those and we have to be... Attentive to that and know that that's what's happening Once we get our attention on what that sin he's calling us from we got to repent from it We got to turn and once we turn God will be able to bless us in an abundant way Let's pray Heavenly Father I just thank you for this text Lord we thank you for the book of Joel Uh, It's just a small but but very mighty book Lord and it gives us the opportunity to know that you're, you're, you're such a great God that you give us warning signs. Because we're headed down the wrong path, you don't let us just continue to go full speed down the wrong path. You, you give us these warning signs through adversity in our lives to make us realize that whatever we're putting our trust and hope in, it's not sustainable. The only thing that's sustainable is you. And, Lord, so I, I pray that as adversity strikes in our life moving forward, as adversity strikes in our loved ones that we have around us, that these men here today can can understand that that's just a sign of if we don't turn from whatever we have going on in our life, it's only going to get worse, and you're giving us this warning sign, Lord, so let us take heed and let us understand these warnings that you're giving us in our lives and know that you can restore like none other. You were the one that provided it to us, Lord, and let us know that you can restore and you will restore Praise God for that, Lord. We're just just thankful that we get to spend this time in your word. Uh, We're thankful that this book of Joel, which I know I did, just oftentimes glossed past it because I wanted to get to the bigger books. But every page, every word in your scripture is from you, Lord. And we see this right here. So I pray that the discussions in small groups will be fruitful. Those sins that, that are on top of people's minds right now, I just can't give that one up. I pray that they give it up this morning. Let other brothers in on it. Let, Let other brothers be praying for that so that they can run the spiritual race to the full potential that you're calling us to run it to. We thank you for this time this morning, Lord, and we give all the glory to you in Christ's name. Amen.